Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and I just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. Let me ask a question as we get started this morning. What are some things that you really spend time preparing for? Maybe you just spend a lot of time getting ready for something. If you've been a student or are a student, maybe you spend a lot of time preparing for a test that you had the SAT or ACT or you had a midterm or final and you had to really study and prepare for that. And that brings back some memories to you of really having to dig in and spend a lot of time in a book or with a study group or something like that. And you had to really prepare Uh, For others of us, maybe you think about something going back to your distant past of going, man, I remember preparing for a big date, uh, like a prom or or a first date with somebody who's now my spouse, and I remember getting ready for that thing. I had a friend in high school who uh, he landed an opportunity to go to prom with this girl that was like his dream girl, right? I mean, like she was everything to him, and everyone was shocked when she said yes to his proposal to go to the prom. And so he spent the week before prom literally taking his car apart, cleaning it, scrubbing it down, making it pristine and perfect like it had come off of the assembly line at the dealership to take her to prom, right? Like the tires came off, the seats came out, the steering wheel came off. He took the car apart and cleaned that thing for this prom date. Right, And so there was that preparation. I'm going to make sure this is good because she said yes to my invitation to go to prom, right? So there was preparation for that. Maybe you think about an anniversary. Uh, Some of you who are newlyweds or younger in marriage that first year going, what are we going to do for our first anniversary? If you've been married a little bit longer, like my wife and I, next year is 20. So we're starting to think about what are we going to do to celebrate 20 years of wedding bliss, Bliss for me, probably suffrage for her, but some things there we want to celebrate. If you're toward that 50-year anniversary, like there's these big things that we want to celebrate and we prepare for as we get into those kind of things. Maybe it's just as simple as a big business meeting that you go, man, I've got to make sure I know my stuff. And when I present this to my business partners, my associates, my bosses, I need to make sure I know what I'm talking about. So I'm going to be ready to present this. And so I know what I'm moving into and I'm ready for it. I'm prepared. Or it could just simply be something like a holiday celebration. You know the whole family's coming into town. You know you're going to have a lot of people in your house, and so you want to be prepared. The house is going to be clean. The food's going to be shopped for. All the beds are going to be made. You're ready to celebrate the holiday with your loved ones. And so when we think about this, this is where we're moving into. There are all kinds of things that we make sure to put effort and energy behind to make sure it's special to make sure we celebrate it well, that we enjoy it to its maximum potential. And so that's what we're going to look at today, a holiday celebration that we're going to focus on, that as Jesus starts to look at the importance of the Passover and what he's going to do in the middle of the Passover week with his disciples as he moves toward the cross to change the focus and the perspective of what Passover is and how we will celebrate it 
in the future from when Jesus lived. And so the night that Jesus celebrates his Passover, we need to understand historically that the Passover was an annual festival that was observed by the Jews. It was potentially the most important festival that they celebrated, the most important holiday that they celebrated. We think about Christmas and Easter. Those are the two big holidays on the Christian calendar. Passover would have been that for the Jews. And so we'll talk about the history of it in just a little while. But Passover was a time for the Jewish people to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. From wherever they might have lived, they would go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And we're told by historians that the city of Jerusalem would swell in capacity at the time of the Passover feast. Uh, The prophet, or not, excuse me, the historian Josephus, it's good to always know the difference between a prophet and historian, all right? Josephus, the historian, actually recorded and said that maybe up to two million people would come into Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. I mean, this is just a massive undertaking to host this many people. And so if you've ever gone, just for our context, maybe to a, a football game at Neyland Stadium in Knoxville on a Saturday, a college game day then you know that you better make some preparations when you go to do that. Because the city of Knoxville swells in capacity. I've heard it said before that Knoxville becomes the second largest city in the state of Tennessee on game day. That many people come in to fill the stadium and to fill parking lots and and to tailgate at football games. Or they used to when Tennessee was good at that kind of thing. But if you are going to go and be there at that event, you better make preparations ahead of time. It's that busy. You better not show up 30 minutes before the game. Traffic's going to be awful. Do you know where you're going to park when you get there? If you're going to eat before or after the game, have you made preparations for that? Have you, have you made uh, a determination of where you're going to be? And do you have a reservation to eat there? Because I can guarantee you there's going to be lots and lots and lots of people around, right? Do you know where your seats are? Do you know what gate you need to go into? There's all these things you have to think forward to and prepare for so that you don't get into the middle of a situation that's really messy if you don't know what you're doing. If you're just a crazy person who wanders into Knoxville, Tennessee on a game day, you may be overwhelmed with that experience in that environment. And so when Jesus gets to this moment, he starts to think ahead as they're moving toward the Passover about how and where and when he's going to spend Passover with his disciples. So I want you to look at Luke chapter 22, start in verse 7, and here's what we see, uh, what we see happen. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. And he replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, and make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Now, let me give you just a couple of thoughts on that passage. Number one, when Jesus sends them into the city of Jerusalem and says, I want you to go prepare for the Passover, and they go, well, how in the world are we going to know where to go or what to do? There are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, and maybe a couple of million people in the city. What do we do, Jesus? And he goes, you walk into the city, and you're going to find a guy 
carrying a water jar. When you see him, you follow him. And for us, we might go, well, that's not really all that specific. I mean, there were probably lots of people carrying water jars, and that may have been the case. However, that was a woman's job or responsibility most of the time at this point in history. Women were the ones that went to the well, went to get water, and bring it back. So to see a man carrying a water jar would have set him apart from all the people in Jerusalem. So Jesus goes, when you go into the city, you're going to find a guy. Now, I want you to follow him and go back to the house that he goes into and talk to the master of that house. I just love this, that Jesus gives his disciples a chance to just creep on this guy a little bit. Like he doesn't say, tell the guy you're going to go with him, that you need to talk to his master. He just goes, follow that dude. Right, And so you've got the disciples now just following this guy. I'm sure he's looking over his shoulder going, why are these two guys following me? But he just keeps on going to the house. And Jesus says, when you get there, tell the master of the house, our master desires to take the Passover here. More than likely, Jesus had had a conversation with this man prior to this time and had said, I'm going to take Passover at your house. When the time comes, I'll send my disciples to make sure everything is ready. Right, And so Jesus does that. Then the third thing, the last thing it says is the room was already furnished, but the preparation still had to be made for the food. They were going to have a large meal, a large celebration. Remember, Jesus takes this meal with his 12 disciples. There are at least 13 people who are going to be a part of this meal. This is like your big Christmas meal with all of your family around, right? That's a lot of preparation. And Jesus sent two guys to do it. So I don't know how many guys in your family prepare all the food for the the celebration, but Jesus sends Peter and John and says, go make sure everything's ready and taken care of. So Jesus and his disciples go to have the Passover meal. But here's what I want us to see in the passage this morning. Jesus and the disciples had two very different approaches to preparing for this meal. Totally different ways of thinking about it. What Jesus had in mind was going to be different than what the disciples had in mind. For the disciples, they were thinking of this being an important meal, but being like every other Passover that they had ever observed. It's Passover. We do this every year. It's Christmas. We do this every year. We know what we're moving into. We know what we're celebrating. And yet Jesus, he's moving toward this, and he's thinking about it as a game-changing event. And so that's what we're going to see this morning is two different trains of thought, the way that the disciples are thinking about the Passover and the way Jesus is thinking about the Passover. Passover for the disciples and for all Jewish people was a time to look back. And they were saying the Passover meal is our reminder that we were slaves at one point in time in history in Egypt. And in our bondage and in our slavery, we cried out to God to rescue us, to bring us out of that situation and to take us into freedom and to the land that he had promised to us. And so when they would celebrate the Passover, they would think about Egypt. And they would remember there had been nine plagues that God had sent on the nation of Egypt to show his power and to turn the heart of Pharaoh to let his people go to their own land to worship him. But the Pharaoh had hardened his heart, and there was no release of the people after nine plagues. So God had in mind to send a tenth and final plague. And in this final plague, it was going to cost the life of the firstborn child, the firstborn male of every household in Egypt. But there was a way to avoid the loss of life. 
And Jesus had told them for the Jewish people, for the Hebrews, the Israelites, but also I think this would have applied to any Egyptian that had heard of it and had taken the warning that if you will kill a lamb on this night of the Passover and put the blood on the doorpost of your house, then when the angel comes, the death angel, to take the life of the firstborn child of the family, if there's blood on the doorpost, that angel will pass over your house and go to the next one. That's why they call it Passover. And so when we see this all play out, the Jewish people would remember this and they would know that the celebration of Passover is about looking back and not having life taken from them because the death angel had passed by them, passed over them. And so if you're taking notes this morning, I want you to see this first point. At the Passover, the lamb's blood became a substitution that brought about salvation. This lamb that would be sacrificed by the Jewish people and the door painted with its blood, the lamb and its sacrifice in the eyes of God became the substitution that brought salvation to their home. And so every time that Passover was celebrated, they would remember that God is both just and merciful. There's a punishment that has to take place because of sin. Because of what the Egyptians had done to God's people, he had to go to this limit. If you remember, one of the things that Pharaoh had done to the the Israelite people was that he had taken their children and thrown them into the Nile River when they were born. Any child that was a male that was born would be thrown into the river and killed. And so God comes along at this last plague and says, the same way that you brought death to my people, I'll bring death to your people. And so the Hebrew people would remember what had taken place. God was just, but he was also merciful. There was a way out. Here's this lamb that if you sacrifice it and take its blood and put it on the doorframe of the home, I'll pass over you. Your home will not be affected by this. There was a substitution for the sins of the people. And so each year, the Jewish people would gather together and they would remember what God had done for them. And that's what they would celebrate at Passover. And as they would eat this meal, they would celebrate their freedom from slavery. That's why the meal was taking place. And that's the meal that the disciples thought that they were preparing for. And we're preparing to look back at what God has done to bring us out of our bondage. And yet for Jesus, he has a different way that he's preparing for this. Jesus was going to take this Passover meal... And he was going to apply the elements and the pieces of the meal to himself. And he was going to say, in the Passover of the Old Testament, this now looking forward to me is not about what God has done in the past, but what about God is doing in the future and in the present moment. And so Jesus takes this meal and he starts to tell the disciples this is about him. Look at Luke 22, verse 14 through 16. It says, when the hour came... Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus had shared at least two and maybe three Passovers with his disciples during during his ministry. But on this night, he says, I've eagerly desired to celebrate this Passover with you. He's not saying, man, I've loved all the other Passovers and they were good, but this is different. This night is different. 
I've waited to celebrate this Passover with you. Why is that true? Why is Jesus excited about this one? Why is this one so special? And the answer is because this is why Jesus had come. Jesus gets to the place that his entire life had been about, moving toward his death, where he's going to become the substitutionary sacrifice for us. In the same way that the lamb was the sacrifice in the Passover of the Old Testament, Jesus was about to become the sacrifice for us. Not to give us freedom from slavery, but freedom from the bondage of sin that controls our life. We are all sin-sick, sin-filled people. And to have our sin forgiven, we need a substitution. We need a sacrifice that's taken place for us. And so Jesus looks at his disciples and said, I'm about to die. He's been telling them that, but they haven't gotten it. He's told them over and over and over again, I'm about to die. And then tonight he says, this is going to be the last time I'm going to take this until it happens that I'm with you again in the kingdom. And so Jesus wasn't looking back. He was looking forward. Look at verses 19 and 20. It says, and he, Jesus, he took the bread He gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Right? And so Jesus takes two of the elements of the Passover meal and he applies them to himself instead of looking back to what they meant for the people who came out of slavery in Egypt. Now, for the Israelites who had gone through slavery in Egypt, the typical Seder service that Israel would observe included a lot of different things. There was the lamb, there was the cup, the wine, but then there was also bread, and there would have been bitter herbs, there was a hard-boiled egg, there, were, uh, there was this apple crisp kind of dessert that was there. And so there were all these different elements to a typical Seder meal, right? Jesus takes two of those elements and he specifically applies them to himself. The body is his bread. Excuse me. The bread is his body. And he takes this bread and he breaks it. Now, if you've ever seen a typical piece of, of matzo bread, it's striped, And it has holes in it. And Jesus would have taken this same idea, this bread, and he would say, you take this bread, this is my body. By the next day, Jesus is going to be arrested, sent to a trial, and beaten, and sent off to his crucifixion. And in the beating that Jesus endured, his body was broken. The lashes that he received, the beating that he received, his skin would have just been hanging like ribbons off of his body. And in the same way that that bread had stripes on it and had holes in it, Jesus' body was broken. It was pierced. He was nailed to a cross. He had nails driven to his hands and his feet. After he had died, to make sure he was really dead, a Roman soldier pierced his side with a spear. It would have gone through his rib cage and into the area around his heart. We're told in the Bible that when he pierced it, there was blood and water that flowed out of his body from around the cavity around his heart. And so Jesus' body was pierced. It was broken. But then Jesus also takes this cup. And Luke tells us it was the cup after the meal. There's some significance in that. There were multiple cups of wine that the Jewish people would have drank during the Passover meal. This was the third cup. 
And he says, after the meal, this cup was known as the cup of redemption. And so as the cup of redemption was taken at that point in time, Jesus says, I want you to have this cup. This cup is the new covenant of my blood. And it's poured out for you. So drink this and know that it's my sacrifice. No longer the blood of that little lamb, that little sheep that you had for Passover meal. This cup is my blood. It's what we celebrated a few minutes ago as we observed communion, the Lord's Supper. When we take the drink of the cup, we drink in the blood of Christ. And so Jesus tells them that that's what's going to take place. We're told in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus knows that shedding of blood is required for sin to be forgiven. So this is why he takes this cup and says, this is my blood. It's the new covenant. There's something new that's taking place here. The Jews, the disciples had been preparing for the celebration of Passover as they had done it all along. Jesus says, this Passover, this starts something new. We're looking toward the future. We're going to see a new opportunity for you to be redeemed through my blood. Now, you might ask, when we take communion, when we observe the Lord's Supper, why isn't there a lamb that's part of this meal? Why do we just do the bread or the wafer and why do we do the cup? And there's no lamb. Well, because Jesus became our Passover lamb. When we eat his flesh and drink his blood, we partake of the lamb. And so John, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he came to be baptized, John said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who's come to take away the sins of the whole world. Right? And so Jesus is the Lamb that is the Passover meal for us. As we eat his flesh through the bread, as we drink of the cup, his blood, we take in the Lamb. Right? And so the lamb was a sacrifice that the Jewish people had to obtain and study and observe to make sure it had no blemishes or spots and then take it to the temple to be sacrificed. There was this big ordeal about dealing with the lamb. But for us, God provided the lamb. We don't have to go through that process because God sent his son to be the lamb. There's no need for a lamb to be sacrificed over and over and over again as it had been for centuries through the Passover celebration. Because Jesus is the once and for all permanent sacrifice. He's the perpetual sacrifice for our sins, once for all. If you're taking notes this morning, write this down. Jesus is the final resolution to pay for our sins and to appease God's just demand for a sacrifice to cover our guilt. This is God's idea, is to say Jesus is going to be the final resolution. No more sacrificing of lambs over and over and over again. I'm going to extend my justice and my grace to the world by providing Jesus as the final sacrifice to cover our guilt. In an article I read this week, I read this quote, the reason Jesus came to Jerusalem that final time wasn't just to celebrate Passover, but to become our Passover. Like Jesus takes that place. He becomes the Passover lamb for us. We can celebrate our salvation knowing that we don't have to provide a lamb to pay for our sins every time we celebrate. And just like the original Passover with the death angel in Egypt, when God sees the blood of Jesus applied to our life, 
We don't paint the blood over a doorpost, but when God looks at us and he sees that we've asked Jesus to become our savior, to take our place, to become our substitution, it's as if in the eyes of God that the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross and shed in his beating covers over us. Jesus' blood is seen in our lives when God looks at you and looks at me when we've repented of our sin and invited him to be our savior. And so in that, we have salvation. I want you to get this because there's a lot of misconceptions about how you become a Christian or what a Christian is. You don't become a Christian by working for it. You don't become a Christian by earning it. You don't become a Christian because it's passed down to you because your parents were great Christians, so you're a Christian. You become a Christian when you come before Jesus and when you say, I recognize that there's no other sacrifice for my sins, no other way to have my sins atoned for or covered or paid for than to accept your blood, your sacrifice on the cross. And so I repent of my sins And I accept your sacrifice on my behalf to do what I can't, to make me clean and to make me pure before your Father in heaven so that I have eternal life with you. And in salvation, then we make the decision to offer our lives for the rest of our days to follow Christ in devotion and to pursue after him and his ways, and his righteousness, so that we will live our lives under the blessing of his grace. So that's where salvation comes from and how we think about it. If you're trusting in anything other than faith in Jesus by the grace of God to get you into heaven, you're missing the mark. You're missing it. This is the way for us to have salvation. Now, next week is Easter. So the question becomes, how are you and I preparing ourselves for that celebration? The disciples went into Passover thinking that they were preparing for one thing. But it had been the same thing they had done over and over and over again their entire lives. And Jesus comes into that Passover and says, I've desired to share this Passover with you. Because in this Passover, I'm going to introduce the new covenant. And we are people of the new covenant. Grace that brings salvation through faith because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And so because of those things, when we think about this, how are we preparing ourselves for Easter? How are we preparing to celebrate this incredible time in our lives? Is it the same as always? Maybe you've already started making your plans. Well, we've got the Easter egg hunt set up. We know where our family's going to be gathering. I got a shop this week. I know what I need. I know what we're going to have. Oh, I got to go get a a new dress or a new shirt. And and we better make sure there's plenty of chocolate because that's a big thing of Easter, right? And so we've got to have all this stuff. And it's just going about Easter as usual. But are we preparing ourselves to say this is a special celebration? This is a time for me to prepare my heart to be attuned to my Savior, to celebrate the fact that he died and that he came back to life. No other religion can claim that. No other belief system in the world 
claims to have a savior, a deity, their God, who died for their sins, who came to the earth to be around his people, to become a sacrifice for them, to lay his life down for them, and then to pick it back up again and walk again in life before resurrecting to the heavens to be with God the Father forever. Jesus' claim is a claim that changes everything. Jesus' sacrifice is a sacrifice that changes everything. So how are we preparing to celebrate? How are we preparing for this? Will you lean into the fact that Easter is the reason any of us can have hope for our future? And so here's what I want you to see. The last thing that I want you to take notes about this morning. How you prepare your heart in worship results in the kind of experience you have in worship. How you prepare your heart to come into a place like this will really result in the type of experience you have when you come here. And I know it's so easy. Listen, I stand on this stage every single week and I look out into the room and sometimes it's just blank faces. It's just like, how much longer are we going to be here? I've got thoughts for lunch. I'm still tired from last night. It was maybe even a mistake that I even came this morning. This hasn't been entertaining at all. I thought this would be fun and exciting and it's just been boring. And this guy just talks and goes on and on and on. And listen, I look out, I know. But the people that I see consistently who have incredible worship experiences are those who prepare themselves for the experience. They're not just people who show up and go, well, it's Sunday, so my car automatically was on pilot and just drove itself here and got up the hill and into a parking space and I walked into the building and then I sat down and I don't even really know why we're here. I'm just doing it every week because this is what I do every week. Or if you want a vibrant expression of your faith, if you really want to celebrate worship, if you really want to get to that place where this changes you, where coming into this place makes you leave different than when you came in, prepare yourself for it. Prepare your heart. Prepare your mind. When I talk to people who go, man, pastor, on Saturdays, that's when I start praying and really cleansing my heart and asking God to forgive me of sin. All through the week, I've been reading my Bible. I've been preparing my heart to engage in this moment. It's the times of individual worship that I have that prepare me for the corporate worship that we enjoy. Those are the people who really get the most out of corporate worship experiences. I give my life all week to this Jesus that has saved me from my sin so that I can know him and follow him. And then when I come together with my church family and we sing the glories of the praises of our God and we hear the teaching of the word of God and we fellowship with one another and we encourage one another, my heart when I leave is so full, it's just overflowing. But it's not just because of coming here on Sunday morning. It's because you've prepared yourself for worship all through the week. That you have worshipped all through the week. So as we come to Easter next week, if you're thinking, well, what's that going to be like? Is it just another Easter service? I mean, this year's kind of different than years past. Last year, we didn't even get to gather for Easter. You guys remember, I preached in my kitchen on Easter Sunday morning. And you watched online. And this year, thank God, we're able to be back together again. But what's the celebration going to be like? What's the experience going to be like? 
And I can tell you that we're not necessarily doing anything over extravagant or abundantly different for our Easter celebration next week. We're going to sing. We're going to take communion. We're going to preach the word of God. We're going to fellowship with one another. There's not going to be any different bells and lights and whistles and fog machines aren't going to happen. Like there's nothing that's going to come in here and you're going to go, man, they just really got us prepared for that one Sunday. So now I feel like I'm all charged up. The difference in celebrating Easter will be how you prepare your heart to come into this place. How you come into this place. And it's not just Easter that I want you to be concerned about. I want us to think about how we prepare ourselves every single week. That when the disciples were preparing for this meal, they had one thing in mind. And Jesus had something totally different in his mind. And I think for those of us who get the most out of the experience of worship in a corporate way, it's because we have a difference of mind and heart when we come to this place. That we can't wait to see what God's going to say to us. That we can't wait to sing out his praises. That we can't wait to engage in relationship with other people. To show his love in tangible ways as we meet needs around us. And so I'm calling you as a church. We've been fasting for the last 40 days leading up to Easter. And the purpose of this fast was to call us to a place where we say, as individuals and as a church, we want more of Jesus. We want more. And so this week, take that approach of saying, as I go through my week, I'm going to prepare my heart for Easter Sunday morning. And subsequently, I'm going to prepare myself for every time we gather. I'm going to learn and discipline myself to be in the Word of God throughout the week, to confess sin to God, to serve my neighbors, to be the hands and feet of Jesus in my community as I love Him. And then I'm going to come together in this corporate setting, and we're going to celebrate. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.